Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, everyone. I'd like to welcome everyone out to another Tuesday evening Bible study entitled Exegeting Galatians. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at Congregation Kehilat Tunuva in Thornton, Colorado. Let's open with prayer. Avinu Malkino, our Father, our King, Lord, we're grateful that you are um, taking us forward, Lord, from Passover to Pentecost. Indeed, as we are counting the Omer with anticipation towards the um, commemoration of the outpoured spirit at, uh, as recorded for us in Acts chapter 2, we're also reminded of the fact that Judaism has preserved that very same date, Shavuot, as the commemoration of the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai, uh, Matan Torah. And so for that reason, Lord, we are ever aware that Pentecost actually uh, commemorates two events, the giving of the Torah and the giving of the Spirit, and helps us to understand a very important principle from the Scriptures. Without the Word, we will not be, um, we will not be grounded in the truths of what you're trying to give to us. And without the Spirit, we won't be able to be empowered to actually do the things that you're showing us. So, Father, we need, we need the practicality of the Word, and we need the power of the Spirit. We need Word and Spirit. We need them both. And so we thank you for uh, this time that we can um, uh, count the Omer towards Shavuot and remind ourselves that it is by your power and by your Spirit that you are leading us, that you are guiding us, that you are causing us to be your people, that you are drawing us uh, unto yourself, and that you are creating... Um, a, with us that you are, are demonstrating in us that is um, your kingdom and so um, uh, Father we thank you for this opportunity um, we take this uh, we take these festivals seriously and we don't want to be lax in them so Lord we thank you that you have uh, commanded us to count the Omer in fact uh, I'll read the blessing a little later on but Lord we thank you that um, You've drawn us together for this time of study, that you are um, allowing us to be a unified people of God, that we can rally around your words, that we can um, discuss the truths of your promises, because we know that they are relevant for our lives today. So for that reason, Lord, open our eyes that we might, un, un, um, that we might um, understand truth, that we might disclose truth, that we might present truth, and that we might declare it to those around us who are still walking in darkness. 
give us an opportunity to witness. Give it, give us the uh, the strength and the boldness that it takes to share our witness with others. Uh, be with us tonight as we embark on this study of Galatians. I pray that you'll bless each and every student that has joined me tonight and that you will give them the supernatural ability to retain the things that they're learning. And Father, continue to raise us up as lights in this dark generation. We'll be careful to give you the praise in Yeshua's name, Amen. Well, let's date stamp this recording. Um, this is week 26, if I'm correct. And um, we have been plugging along on our uh, study in the book of Galatians. And uh, tonight we're going to be uh, um, opening up a new topic entitled um, Covenantal Nomism and Justification. From a topical perspective, this is topic number five. If you've um, downloaded the commentary, my Galatians commentary, and you're looking at the entire commentary, if you look at the table of contents, you'll see it's topic number five. Um, Date-wise, today is May the 10th, 2016. And um, as I mentioned, since we're on week 26, uh, we're nearing our semester break. And the way this works is we study for 10 weeks and we take a break for two weeks. And then we study for 10 weeks and we take a break for two weeks. And so every our semesters are 10 weeks long. So um, at week 30, will it be at the uh, end of our uh, semester again? or at the end of our uh, second semester. So I hope you can stay with me through the entire study. Uh, the entire commentary is available online at www.tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. That's my personal website. And right along the top of the webpage, there's a link that says Galatians Commentary. Just click on that and scroll down. You'll find the links for the PDF document, which is, right now, it's about 180-something pages long. Um, you'll find links for the uh, live class that we're doing now. You'll find links for the um, uh, the uh, uh, webpage versions of each uh, chapter or section or topic, as I've been calling them. And you'll also find information about the audio audio recordings that I'm recording, that I'm capturing uh, of the live session. I actually upload them after the fact, usually one or two days later after I've done some editing. And I upload them to um, Apple's iTunes store so that you can subscribe to the podcast and take them along on your MP3 device or uh, iPad or iPod, things like that. So let's open up with some liturgy, and that will um, get us into the study tonight. For those of you who are in the live class, you'll see I've got um, new liturgy pulled up. Since we start a new section, typically, as I've been um, fond of doing, whenever we start a new section, I actually um, entertain new liturgy, at least from the Tanakh I do. The New Testament liturgy uh, just kind of keeps um, juggling around between various passages that are actually in the book of Galatians itself. But for our um, liturgy from the quote, uh, the so-called Old Testament, Let's pull a passage out of the book of Ezekiel. This is one of my favorite passages because of the way the prophet describes the um, the promise of the new covenant and the promise of the pouring out and the infilling of the Spirit and the promise of, of, of returning to covenant faithfulness. And that's really going to be our topic today is when we talk about covenantal nomism, we're going to be talking about covenant faithfulness and things like that. So... I've done something a little different with the liturgy this time. If you'll notice, uh, those of you who are in the live class with me, you'll notice I've got um, a, a kind of a table going on. And on the left side, I've got the ESV in English. And then right down the middle, I've got the Hebrew. And then right down the right side, 
I um, composed some transliteration. And this is for those of you who are kind of practicing your Hebrew, and you can't read the Hebrew script yet, but you want to kind of approximate the sounds of Hebrew. I threw in some transliteration using the uh, using Latin alphabet, using the English alphabet. And so basically, if you can read the transliteration, then you can kind of approximate what the Hebrew is sounding like. Uh, so I thought that might be a little interesting. So let's read verse by verse. We're going to read... Ezekiel chapter 36, starting in verse 22, and we'll read down to verse 28, okay? Let's read. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. Lachain emor levet Yisrael ko amar Adonai Hashem, Lo l'ma'anchem ani osei beit Yisrael ki im l'shem kadshi asher chilaltem bagoyim asher batem sham. Verse 23, And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Vakidashti et shmi hagadol ham hulal bagoyim asher chilaltem batocham vayadu hagoyim ki ani Adonai neum Adonai Hashem vahigadshi vachem leinehem. Verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. Vazarachti alechem mayim tochorim uthartem mikol tumotechem mikol gululechem ataher etchem. Verse 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put within you. I'm sorry, let me start that verse over. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Vanatati lachem lev chadash vruach chadasha etain bakir bachem vahasiruti et lev ha even mi besarachem vanatati lachem lev besar. Verse 27 And I will put my spirit within you and cause you. To walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Ve'et uchi etain b'kirabachem va'asiti eight asher b'chukai telechu u'mishpatai tishmuru va'asitem. And the final verse, verse twenty-eight: You shall dwell in the land that I gave you to your fathers, that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be. Your God, the Shavtem 
ba'aretz, asher natati la'avotehem, v'chitem li la'am, v'anuhi eche lachem le'elohim. Amen. Now, um, I pulled this liturgy into our selection for a very significant reason. I'm of the persuasion that God has promised to pour His Spirit out upon national Israel one day. And in this promise, He will replace the stony heart with a heart of flesh. We see this uh, quite explicitly in verse 26. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. So we see that this is really the promise of the new covenant. This 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 new covenant language about replacing the heart of stone with a heart of flesh and putting the Spirit of God within the people of God, this is already familiar language to us, especially if you recall Jeremiah's words in Jeremiah 31, 33 and, and the following verses repeated for us at length in Hebrews chapter 8 and Hebrews chapter 10. So we know that new covenant is something that God promised Israel. Um, by the way, Ezekiel gave us a teaser version of this in chapter 11, around verse, uh, I think, 17 to 20 or something like that. And then he's uh, uh, fleshing it out right here in chapter 36 of his uh, letter. And the point I'm trying to get us to uh, appreciate as uh, so-called New Testament Christians is that the promise of new covenant given to the house of Israel, given to the people of Israel, is something that incorporates the Gentile people groups. Because we know as Gentile believers, I'm a Jewish believer, but I speak as a Gentile believer from time to time just so I can get the inclusio. We know as Gentile believers that the, the, the new covenant is the promise that we live with because of what Yeshua did for us, because of the cross event, because of the outpoured spirit at Shavuot. So we know that we are, in fact, new covenant believers, if we want to use that term. But we have to remind ourselves as Christians that new covenant is something that God gave and established with the house of Israel. Therefore, it is my belief that Gentile Christianity is couched within the remnant within the promises that God gave to remnant Israel, which is the new covenant language that I'm reading about here in the book of Ezekiel. This means that the outpoured spirit, which is given to the people, which we're reading about the promise here, the, the pouring out of the spirit, uh, the placing of a new heart within a person, has an effect. It has a purpose. It has a designed goal, a designated goal from God's perspective. And we don't have to guess what that goal is. We can see it right here in the passages. What does he say in verse 27? I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Israel of old had a, had a, had a, heart, of, a heart of stone a cold heart, and a stubborn, a stiff-necked attitude towards God's ways. And as a result, they were stubborn, stiff-necked, rebellious, and quite disobedient. And they didn't follow after God's ways. And God realized that there was a problem with Israel. And I'm kind of pulling in some of the language from the Jeremiah passage, the one that we're more familiar with. What was the problem with the people? having Finding fault with them, uh, the book of Hebrews says, when it's quoting the Jeremiah passage, finding fault with them, God promised that he would send a brit chadasha, a new covenant, or if we want to translate that that, uh, that word chadasha is renewed covenant, I think that's fine as well. But God said he will send a new covenant 
and establish a new covenant with the house of Israel. And this new covenant would not be like the old covenant where the words were merely written on stone. Rather, this new covenant would have the words of God written on their heart. And so we see that the Ezekiel passage and the Jeremiah passage are both both capturing the same promise. In fact, uh, Jeremiah's promise and Ezekiel's promise um, work together. They're, they're, they're essentially the same word of the Lord because it's the same God, right? So we have the new covenant describing the Torah being written on the heart via the Spirit of God, and the result is that the people of God would no longer be disobedient, but rather would, in fact, walk in my statutes and walk in my ways, be, be careful to obey my rules. The, the um, word tishmaru, the root word is shamar, which basically means to guard, but sometimes it's translated as do. So when God says, walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules, the ESV has obey, but I would translate it, be careful to... Um, be. Uh, and they would guard to do. Uh, we have both words in there. Tishmuru va'asitem. Tishmuru, the root word is shamar, which is like to guard. And va'asitem, uh, the root word is asa, which means to do. So basically, guard to do. And indeed, you won't do something that you don't first carefully guard. Make sense? So um, the point I'm trying to highlight in our liturgy, without actually turning this into a full-blown sermon in and of itself, is that... The um the the new covenant has a has a purpose of of propelling us forward into Torah obedience. So the the idea that under the new covenant the Torah is done away with, or under the new covenant the Torah is relaxed, or under the new covenant um, Jesus fulfills the law, so we don't have to do them. Under the new covenant we're no longer under the law. Under the new covenant the law is done away with. Uh, under the new covenant, though, uh, the the reality replaces the shadows. All of that theology that the church has um, has rallied around for the last two thousand years doesn't line up with the actual promises of the new covenant that are spelled out in the Tanakh. You understand the challenge there? So I I wish the um, traditional Christian church would be a bit more um, careful in their exegesis and explanation of New Covenant uh, when it comes to explaining the relationship to the Torah. And this is going to play right into our discussion on covenantal nomism tonight, and that's why I'm spending a little more time on giving you the um, background behind uh, the, the, the New Covenant promises as they have been articulated to Israel. So, uh, with that, let's um, let's turn now to the uh, the New Covenant passages. Uh, or the New Testament passages, if you want to describe them that way. Let's see. If you're in the class with me tonight, um, you'll see now I should have Galatians 5 pulled up. And I'm actually going to read Galatians 5, 1 through um, 6 again. Again, uh, I've, I've read this in the past. And I'm also going to pull in the Galatians passage, Galatians 2.16, the verse that we studied last week. And I'll sh I'll tell you why in a bit. But let me read the the ESV first and then I'll read the Greek and then I'll explain why I'm bringing in these passages. Galatians 5, 1 through 6, the ESV reads, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Um, I won't read uh, English Greek, English Greek like I did with Hebrew because I've got all of the English uh, clumped together on one page and so I'll just read all of the English and then I'll go back and read all of the Greek. 
So I think maybe I'll do that with the Hebrew next time as well, instead of jumping back and forth between each verse. Let's start over. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. All right, let's pull up the interlinear, which uh, you can see on the webpage if you're in the class with me. Um, basically, I'm just going to pull the Greek, but I use this interlinear version so that you can see the uh, transliteration just above the Greek script, and then you can see the uh, wooden translation in the English below that, and then also the... Um, uh, what do we call that? The uh, the parsing key, uh, the parts of speech, um, the things like that that you can see over on the left. Um, I can't remember what we call that, but uh, um, basically that's in case you want to know like what's the part of speech and uh, what word uh, is is capturing what um, playing what part in the Greek and things like that. Uh, the uh, um, Gosh, there's a phrase I'm looking for, but it's escaping me. When I think of it, I'll, I'll tell you what it is. But, um, so let's read the Greek. We've got, uh, starting in verse 5, Hemes gar pneumati. Actually, you know what? I should start at verse 1. Duh. Sorry about that. Let me scroll back up here for you. Give me a moment. Wiz IQ seemed to want to slow down on me for a moment. There we go. All right. Um, the morphology is the word I was looking for ology, uh, earlier. The morphology is what the uh, what we find on the very, very bottom row. All right, let's read the Greek. Te eleutheria, hemas Christos eleutherosin, stekete un kai me palen zugo douleis in a keste. And verse 2. Ide ego palas, lego human hati in peritemnesta, Christos humas uden ophelese. Verse 3. Marturo mai de palen pandi anthropo peritamnomeno hati ophelates estin halenton naman poiesai. Verse 4. Catera gita apocristu hoitinus in namo decauste de scaratas exabasate. And verse 5. Heme scarp numati ec pistios. I'm sorry, yes, pistios elpida decausunes apec decumitha. And I should read verse 6 as well, correct, right? Uh, since I read it in English, verse 6 reads, Engar Christo Jesu, ute per tome, ti iscue ute acrobustia, ala pistis di agapes in ergumene. Okay, I said I wanted to read verse um, 16, chapter 2, verse 16 from last week as well, but before I do, let me explain the, the, um, the, the uh, import of this passage as it relates to the previous passage and how it relates to tonight's study about uh, covenantal nomism. Um, what we have going on in the Greek, I'm sorry, what we have going on in in, um, in this passage is Paul describing righteousness and describing the freedom that that Christ offers to us, but Paul also includes something that many people often miss, and that's Paul is actually describing the, what the Jewish people would um, understand to be covenantal nomism, which is um, essentially a covenant faithfulness that's that's 
driven and um, a covenant faithfulness that is uh, marked out by its adherence to the law. Thus, the word covenantal and nomism. Nomistic is kind of a, this this um, description of doing what the Torah asks us to do. It's rooted in the, in the Greek word namas, which is usually transworded law. And notice Paul describes that in verse um, 3. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. This phrase, keep the whole law, is this idea of covenantal nomism, keeping the law, this nomistic service to the covenant, thus covenantal nomism. But Paul also couches this entire um, paragraph, this, this, this statement that he's uh, challenging the Galatian readers with. He notice, notice he couches it in this uh, warning. You're severed from Christ if you're trying to be justified by the law, justified by obligation to covenantal nomism if I could put it that way, justified by works of the law, if I could fill out the word law there and add what I believe Paul's really trying to say, justified by um, your ethnicity, which drives your Torah obedience. And this word justified, as we've talked about in the past, is, uh, let me pull it up in the Greek here for you, verse, what did I say, verse 3? Um, nope, it's verse 4. You are severed from Christ, katergeta apo Christo, whoever in law, hoitinus in namo, are being justified, this dikaiuste, tes haratas exposate, from grace you have fallen away. So this phrase, um, are being justified, if we notice it's a verb that's in the um, present indicative. Um, the, the verb are being justified, present tense in the Greek kind of just signifies like, just like what it sounds. A, a, an ongoing verb, something that's happening right before our very eyes. Um, presently, it's happening, if, if you want to just um, simplistically describe it the way. Um, but the mood, uh, I like to say that Greek is a moody language. Greek has these moods, these, these, this, this other indicator of the Greek that helps us kind of describe and, and understand what's taking place in the action. In the, and in, um, in this particular case, it's in what we call the indicative mood. Um, as it sounds, the indicative mood indicates, it states facts, uh, it states things that are true and that are factual, and so uh, are being justified. It's something that is happening presently, and it is a state of fact. It's, it's, a, it's factual that it's happening, is what, how I would describe the, the um, uh, present indicative mood. And so Paul says, you're severed from Christ, whoever in law are being justified. It's happening right before your very eyes, Paul warns them. You're, you're, you're being pulled away from the, 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 um, the being rooted in Christ if you are in the process of trying to be justified, trying to be justified by your by some other means you're you're being it's not like it's just going to happen overnight that's the point i'm trying to make it's rather i think it's a falling away that happens in stages it's it's kind of where your love grows cold it's not necessarily that you lose your salvation uh rather it's that you fall from the position of grace or the from the position of of, of trying to make the decision that christ is in fact the one and only true way to be justified. And we've already talked about this in the past, that this phrase, dika um, uste, uh, if you'll notice, if, you've, if you're in my class with me, you'll see that this is Strong's number 1344. And that's because it's the, it's, um, the root word, um, oh, dikaios. No, it's not dikaios. 
Uh, it's a different root word. Uh, I apologize off the top of my head. I can't remember what the root word is. Uh, 1344, let's just look it up. Uh, I've got my Greek um, uh, concordance pulled up, opened up on the screen. It's actually um, dikaiao. That's the word I was looking for. So the root word is dikaiao, um, which uh, dikaiao itself is a verb. And so the root verb dikaiao is actually rooted in the adjective dikaios. And so if you're looking at the screen right now, you've got, you see I've got the Strong's Concordance. I've got like a little um, uh, lexicon page pulled up that I copied from, um, from uh, uh, BibleHub.com. So we've got dikaios. Uh, and the Strong's Concordance definition, uh, we see it's an adjective, uh, and its short definition is just, righteous, impartial, uh, especially just in the eyes of God, righteous, the elect, and the cog this is a cognate. This root word, dikaios, helps us to get our verb um, dikaiao, and it also is going to give us our um, noun dikaiosune, which we're going to see here in uh, Galatians 2.16 in a moment. But as, the thing I wanted to really highlight for you, if you're looking at my screen right now, is at the lower left corner, you'll see that righteous relates to conformity to God's standard. Um, I'm sorry, uh, let me go up one. You'll see that it says... Um, uh, dikaios is an adjective derived from uh, decay, which is right judicial approval, properly approved by God. That's according to Thayer's, uh, uh, the, the TSBD, and just in the eyes of God, according to Souter. So we've got this courtroom language that Paul likes to borrow whenever he's talking about justification or righteousness. Um, righteousness and justification are the, basically the English translations of the Greek um, you know, dikaiosune, dikaios, dikaiuste, things like that, depending if you're depending on whether you're not you're talking about the verb or the noun. And the point I'm really trying to stress, without getting too overly technical in my liturgical section of this study, is that the goal that we need to seek is God's approval. It's not man's approval, it's God's approval. And when God declares us righteous, then we know that everything else will fall into place from that perspective. Whether or not man accepts the fact that we are righteous, what we really want to seek is God's uh, approval, God's declaration that we are righteous or that we are in the process of walking righteously. And so when um, God gives us his ways and fills us with his spirit so that we are empowered to walk into his ways, like the Ezekiel passage described for us, the point I'm trying to emphasize is that the righteousness that we that our life will display is acceptable to God because God has declared us righteous by His Son. He doesn't give His Spirit to those who are not um, in covenant relationship with His Son Yeshua. The pouring out of His Spirit into our hearts is an indicator that we have received His Son by faith, and we know this to be true because the Acts two. Um, uh, story where the pouring of the, out, the outpouring of the Spirit uh, comes upon us to uh, um, is a subsequent event to our a salvation event. The Spirit gets poured out. Uh, the P Spirit gets uh, given to us as a subsequent event to our salvation. Is the point I'm trying to make. And the Spirit Himself is the witness of our salvation. The Spirit testifies of Yeshua, the very real presence of Yeshua in our lives. You can't be spirit filled without without confessing faith in Yeshua. Is my belief. Um, there, the, you you might have spiritual activity in your life. You might have um, you might have spiritual uh, visitations, as it were, uh, spiritual. 
um, vibrations, as some people might call it. But the point is, you're not going to be, you can't really declare that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. And Paul teaches that explicitly. So going back to um, uh, our liturgy, if we pull in the Galatians 2.16 passage that we used from last week, we'll see Paul, Paul says, knowing there, and this time I'm just going to read the wooden um, uh, word, uh, uh, it's just, I'm just going to read the wooden Greek for us. It says, uh, I'm sorry, the wooden English. It says, knowing therefore that not is justified a man by the works of law, edatus de hati u de kaiutai, anthropos ex ergonamu. This phrase, uh, justified a man de kaiutai, is, is the same root word there. This time it's the, the present indicative of a verb there. And dikaiutai is Paul's way of saying righteous, justified. Again, but what's really nice is Paul uses this same word three times in one verse. Justified a man by works of law, if not through faith of Christ. Jesus, even we in Christ Jesus, believe that we might be justified. Dikaiothomen. And this time it's in the um, aorist subjunctive tense. The aor of ten, aorist tense is kind of like the... Um, if we were to call it a simple uh, past tense, uh, that might be um, kind of a, a good description of it. Uh, something that has happened is how I would describe the aorist tense. But because it's the subjunctive, subjunctive is kind of like the thing that we wish for. It's the thing hoped for. It's 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 it describes the possibilities, and so that's why it's to, it's uh, translated as might be justified. So the verb is in a different mood, a different tense aorist tense instead of the uh, uh, present tense like we had earlier. And then um, we find the same word again a little further on down in the verse, uh, and not by works of law, uh, because by works of law not will be justified. There's our uh, Greek phrase again, dikaiothesitai this time. And this time the verb is in the future. So we have a present tense, an aorist tense, and a future tense. And we can see that future tense easily lends itself to a translation that says... Um, uh, will be justified. It's actually future indicative as well. Indicative indicates in future. I'm sorry. Indicative mood uh, in Greek basically just describes the things that it indicates. It 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 describes facts. It kind of states the basic facts. Like like what do they say in uh, in Dragnet? Just the facts, ma'am. That's that's kind of the indicative mood in the Greek. So three times this root word, the kaios or dikaiao, um, the group, the decay word group. This, three times this, this, this root word shows up in Paul in one verse. And so we can see that it's, it's a very important concept to Paul, and that's why we're going to talk about it tonight in our study on Lesson 5, Covenantal Nomism and Justification. So let's just pull up uh, the study. For those of you who are in the live class, you'll see I'm on basically page 41. If you've gotten the written commentary, I haven't made a lot of updates to the written notes in a while, for probably a few months. Um, so I've slowed down a little bit on my updates, is the point I'm trying to make. At least not major updates that would cause the page numbers to shift. Maybe um, uh, correcting some typos here and there as I find them. But this means that um, I think I can give you the green light to go ahead and print out the uh, written commentary if you have it with you. All right, for those of you who are in the live class... Um, You'll see that we're on uh, the top of page 41, and I think we'll be able to get through a good portion of this. As I mentioned uh, in the last two weeks, I'm going to try and stick more closely to <clears throat> to the notes 
rather than stopping and explaining myself so much. I think the written notes are fairly self-explanatory, and besides, I've already spent the last 30 minutes just handling the liturgy, so uh, I think it's only fair that I uh, concentrate more on the notes for this next half hour. Covenantal nomism and justification. Uh, before we transition, for the most part, from circumcision and works of the law into a different Pauline phrase known as under the law in section 7 below, I want to tie works of the law together with the pattern of religion in first century Israel by briefly examining the theological concepts known as covenantal nomism and justification. These are two separate concepts. Covenantal nomism is one thing, justification is something else. They, they work in tandem, by the way, but they're two different concepts that I'm, I'm going to hit both of them in this study tonight. If, as I maintain, first century... <clears throat> First century Israel did not define works of the law, i.e. Torah observance, as legalism, the way the church defines legalism. How then exactly did she conceptualize and define her law-keeping? Let me pause and interject. Those of you who come from a Christian background are quite um, familiar with the fact that if you, say, turn on the TV or you watch the movies... Uh, watch TV, watch the movies, watch YouTube these days. You don't even have to go to the movies or turn on TV. You're quite familiar with the sight of religious Jews with black and white garb, black hats, long beards, uh, side curls, bending and bobbing, bowing and weaving at the wall, um, praying with their prayer books, their their prayer shawls, their tzitzit, and you see them devotedly pressing in to the Torah. You see them scrupulously keeping the minutia of the law. Every little do and don't, dotting all the I's, crossing all the T's, making sure they don't um, do any work on the Sabbath, making sure they don't put anything that's not kosher into their mouth, making sure uh, that they uh, are just right in their observance. And you stop and scratch your head sometimes as a Christian and wonder, what is driving their devotion to the Torah? Why are they so fiercely devoted to the Torah? Why can't they see that justification, that salvation is only available in Christ? And that's what most Christians, in my experience, that's the, that's the opinion that they form when they, when they observe uh, very Torah-observant Jewish people, religious Jews. And... It, it, in, in my oversimplistic description, there are some assumptions that are being made by Christians. The assumption is that the Jewish people are devoted to the Torah because they hope or think or believe or are convicted that their observance will save them. And I'm here to talk about covenantal nomism tonight because this is actually not quite accurate. It's not really the way Jewish people interact with the Torah. They're not really believing that their Torah observance will save them, not in the simplistic manner that Christians describe it. So, let's keep reading my commentary. What was, speaking of Israel, what was her motive for remaining so devoted to the Torah and subsequently to the covenants? Did she believe her Torah observance granted her initial salvation? Or perhaps did she instead believe her Torah observance helped her to maintain a status of non-idolater, viz. justified existing covenant member. Since her initial and ongoing salvation was believed to have been gained by belonging to the people group of Israel, and therefore such maintenance was necessary to stay saved. 
These are all questions that I'm throwing out right at the beginning of the um, of the study. What Nanos and other recent scholars, E.P. Sanders, James D.G. Dunn, N.T. Wright et al., what they're describing as pertaining to Paul's first century Judaism and how it reportedly defined itself in terms of patterns of religion has been carefully labeled as covenantal gnomism. Theopedia.com introduces and describes covenantal gnomism for us in this way. Let's get a working definition for us first. Um, quote, Covenantal gnomism is the belief that first century Palestinian Jews did not believe in works righteousness. Essentially, it is the belief that one is brought into the Abrahamic covenant through birth and one stays in the covenant through works. It suggests that the Jewish view of relationship with God is that keeping the law is based only on a prior understanding of relationship with God. Theopedia goes on to say, E.P. Sanders is known for coining the term covenantal gnomism, quote-unquote. This term is essential to the NPP view, the new perspective on Paul is what the NPP stands for, as Sanders argues that this is the pattern of religion found in Second Temple and Rabbinic Judaism. The term is used as shorthand, that is, a shortened term used to describe a larger idea. This is Theopedia. They continue. Sanders defines this idea as such, quote, Briefly put, covenantal gnomism is the view that one's place in God's plan is established on the basis of the covenant and that the covenant requires as the proper response of man his obedience to its commandments while providing means of atonement for transgression, end quote. That's lifted from E.P. Sanders' Paul and Palestinian Judaism, page 75. Let's keep reading. This is Theopedia. This is important because it has huge implications for one's understanding of first century Judaism and thus for one's interpretation of, of how Paul interacted with it. If covenantal gnomism is true, then when Jews spoke of obeying commandments or when they required strict obedience of themselves and fellow Jews, it was because they were keeping the covenant. It was not out of legalism. Sanders says that one's place in God's plan is established on the basis of the covenant. Therefore, as long as a Jew kept their covenant with God, he remained a part of God's people. Theopedia continues, How does one keep the covenant? Sanders tells us, quote, The covenant requires as the proper response of man his obedience to the commandments, end quote. All of Judaism's talk about obedience is thus in the context of covenantal gnomism and not legalism. They uh, go on to say, they go on to say, as a result, Judaism, uh, Judaism is then not concerned with how to have a right relationship with God, but how to remain His covenant people. This has sometimes been compared to the issue of keeping or losing one's salvation. End quote. And if you look at footnote number thirty. You'll see that I lifted that from Theopedia.com, their article on New Perspective on Paul. That's what NPP basically describes. Okay, so we see here, uh, we're on the top of page 42. We see basically, if I can um, uh, uh, get the import of what uh, Theopedia was trying to say, it's basically that the, um, the view of covenantal gnomism challenges the assumption that the Jewish people keep the Torah for the purpose of trying to be saved. Now, um, Covenantal gnomism describes the motive 
describes the motive. Because really, if you lined up two people, and they were both keeping Torah, and one of them was genuinely saved, and one of them wasn't genuinely saved, from the outside, you might not be able to tell which one is really saved and which one isn't, especially if they're both very devoted in their Torah obedience. Understand what I'm saying? So we can't really know know the motive. We can't know the heart um, just by the actions, at least not always. Um, eventually, the, the actions are supposed to uh, reveal what's on the heart, and I believe that is a biblical principle. In other words, we should be able to to uh, inspect fruit in order to make to draw some assumptions about uh, about the genuine uh, whether or not they are a genuine believer or not. But truly, only God knows the heart. And so, when we're talking about motive, when we're talking about why people do what they do, I think it's an unfair stereotype that the church has labeled the Jewish people with when they call them legalists. When we see Jewish people um, devoted to Torah obedience, Jewish people maintaining their um, lifestyle in accordance with the covenant of Moshe, in accordance with the Torah of Moshe. And it's, I think it's unfair for us to characterize them as legalists. I think it's unfair to, uh, at, le at least in, unless we've had a... a meaningful dialogue with the person and they actually tell us uh, in no uncertain terms, oh yeah, if I, if I keep the Torah perfectly, then God will save me. Well then, yeah, of course, label them a legalist. But if you don't know the person and all you can do is observe what they're doing but you've never had a, had a conversation with them, how can we rightfully say that what they're doing is done because they think they're trying to save themselves? And so when we peek into the first century Jewish people's devotion to Torah, and all we have is the New Testament to go by, then I think it's uh, I think it's a safe assumption that we're making a, an unfair stereotypical characterization when we describe their uh, devotion to Torah as legalism or merit theology. So I think covenantal Mormonism is a um, I think it is a worthwhile uh, perspective to consider when we talk about the first century. Uh, devotion to Torah and why the Jewish people did what they did. And the point I'm trying to make and emphasize before I continue my commentary is I believe that the uh, research into the rabbinic uh, literature, if we can trust what they've said, I believe the research into the rabbinic literature indicates that the Jewish people were keeping Torah not necessarily because they thought that their Torah obs observance would save them, but rather they kept Torah because they believed that the maintenance of their covenant membership required them to be fiercely devoted to Torah. In other words, not necessarily to, to, to be saved, but to stay saved. Or to use Sanders' language, not necessarily to get in, but to stay in. So, let's look at this in my commentary. Top of page 42. Quoting from Sanders and Wright in the same article... Um, Theopedia goes on to include a brief discussion about the problems with the traditional Lutheran view of Paul and suggest that the new perspective on Paul, the NPP, actually exonerates first-century Judaism from the centuries-long charge of being a works-based religion. Let's quote Theopedia once more. Quote, A fundamental premise of the NPP is that Judaism was actually a religion of grace. Sanders puts it clearly, and here's a quote from Sanders' work once again. Quote, on the point at which many have found the decisive contrast between Paul and Judaism, grace and works, Paul is in agreement with Palestinian Judaism. Salvation is by grace, but judgment is according to works. God saves by grace, but 
Within the framework established by grace, he rewards good deeds and punishes transgression. End quote. That's from that uh, work, Paul and Palestinian Judaism, again, page 543. All right, Theopedia continues. N.T. Wright adds that, quote, we have misjudged early Judaism, especially Pharisaism, if we have thought of it as an early version of Pelagianism. Wright what St. Paul really said, page 32, that's, a, that's, what, uh, that's the quote from Wright. However, Stephen Westerholm adds caution to such a quick, quickly drawn conclusion. Theopedia continues, While one may enthusiastically endorse the new perspective dictum that first century Judaism was a, relig- a religion of grace and acknowledge that it represents an important corrective of earlier, cent- of earlier caricatures, it is hardly pedantic to point out that more precision is needed before such a statement can illuminate discussion of the Lutheran Paul. Pelagius and Augustine, to take but the most obvious examples, both believed in human, inter- uh, human dependence on divine grace, but they construed dependent—I'm sorry—they construed that dependence very differently. That's a quote from Westerholm from his Perspectives, Old and New, on Paul, page two sixty-one to two sixty-two, and the final paragraph from Theopedia reads, quote, Thus, as Westerholm points out, although first century Judaism may have believed in grace, it becomes more, even more important to establish why they believed in grace and how this affected their view of salvation. Those from the NPP seem quick to jump to the conclusion that first century Judaism was in agreement with the same understanding of grace found within the New Testament and Paul's theology. Again, as Westerholm notes above, this word grace can be understood very differently, end quote. And that entire uh, quote from Theopedia, uh, you can see in my footnote to number 32, is lifted from their same article. Now, the point that Theopedia is trying to emphasize in the second quote, and I won't, I won't belabor this point, is that the grace that the first century Judaism saw themselves as existing in, where they saw election as grace. God chose them. They didn't choose themselves. God elected to to uh, separate Israel from the nations and to pour his words into them uh, at the foot of Sinai, Matan Torah. And this grace that first century Judaism described, it's not exactly the same type of grace that Christians Enjoy. It's not the same type of grace that Christians describe when they talk about being forgiven of sins, being found in the blood of Messiah. And we need to remind ourselves that before we go much further, to if we were to assume that the Jewish people of the first century were hoping that their that their um, obedience to the Torah would save them, if we were to assume that that is the correct way to view their devotion to the Torah, then we would we would instantly realize that such uh, such meritorious deeds done in the name of Torah obedience will never earn you salvation with God. It will never earn you the status of being declared as righteous. Uh, there's that dikaiosune uh, all over again, right? You'll never be counted as righteous in God's sight from a forensic, positional, salvific perspective by keeping the Torah. And that's because... Um, there's manifold reasons why you can't do that. But safe to say that if that's what the Jewish people were thinking, then we know that that's, that's, um, that's an incorrect theology. But by the same vein, we also realize that if the Jewish people thought that they were saved because they were Jewish, but were simply keeping the Torah because they needed to maintain their covenant membership by keeping the Torah, viz. works of the law, 
We also know that that theology is mistaken as well. We know that that theology doesn't square with what Paul teaches. We're not saved by keeping the Torah, and we don't maintain our salvation by keeping the Torah. Neither one of those positions works. Nor are we saved by being Jewish, nor do we maintain our covenant membership or our salvation by being Jewish, if, if one could maintain their Jewishness, so to say. So we see that covenantal nomism perhaps is an accurate description of the devotion to Torah from the first century Jewish perspective. However, we also know that the underlying theology behind covenantal nomism as it pertains to maintaining covenant membership or maintaining salvation, we know that theology is invalid. So let's keep reading my commentary. Bottom of page 42. Indeed, for the last 30 or 40 years, ever since biblical scholars began noticing serious inconsistencies with the characterizations of rabbinic Judaism by Lutheran Paul proponents, as well as the anachronistic portrayals of Paul's supposed ambivalence in regards to Judaism and Torah relevance, this radical new perspective on Paul has been on the rise. These are my words, by the way. Craig L. Blomberg, professor of New Testament of uh, New Testament at Denver Seminary in Colorado, from where I'm from, speaks of this new perspective as a new look at Paul's readings. We're on the top of page 43. Let's pull this quote from um, from uh, Professor Blomberg. Quote: Put simply, the last 25 years of Pauline scholarship has come to see the so-called new look on Paul becoming the reigning paradigm. Contrary to classic Reformation thought, Paul was not a scrupulous Jew, increasingly frustrated with his inability to keep the law perfectly and thus merit God's favor. And indeed, early first century Palestinian Judaism was a religion of covenantal nomism. Jews understood they were already right with God by virtue of birth into the unique covenant God had made with his elect people, Israel. The role, of co uh, the role of obedience to the law was one of staying saved, not getting saved, and was not too different from Paul's concept of faith working itself out through love. That's a quote from Galatians 5.6. He goes on to conclude, The major difference between Paul and the Judaism of his day then, for Sanders and the New Look, is the acceptance of Jesus as the promised Messiah, not a contrast between grace and works righteousness. You can see the footnote to 33 there was taken from the uh, online article uh, that uh, points to uh, www.denverseminary.edu. Let's keep reading my commentary. Dunn seems to think that Sanders' description of covenantal nomism actually describes his own personal understanding of works of the law. Speaking of his own examination of the phrase works of the law found in the Kumon literature, Dunn writes, quote, In terms introduced by Sanders, works of the law is then another way of saying covenantal nomism, that which characterizes being in the covenant and not simply getting into the covenant, as Sanders himself puts it. Wright goes on to say, and in ter I'm sorry, Dunn goes on to say, and in terms of the preceding analysis, works of the law are Paul's way of describing in particular the identity and boundary markers which Paul's Jewish Christian opponents thought and rightly thought were put under threat by Paul's understanding of the gospel, end quote. 
uh, footnote to number 34, lifted from uh, Dunn's work, Jesus, Paul, and the Law, page 220. I, I go on to say, essentially as I see it, when Sanders began to undertake the research behind his 1977 Paul and Palestinian Judaism publication, Sanders felt the need to re-examine, and at times challenge and correct, the prevailing Christian perspectives as regards the first century systematical approach to the doctrines of soteriology, which is salvation, as well as its resultant sanctification. However, Sanders decidedly felt the need to move beyond what he describes as a too narrow standard Christian approach to these topics. Using his now famous getting in and staying in language, he describes pattern of religious thusly. Now let's pull a quote from that work from Sanders. Quote, they were at the uh, bottom of page 43 here. A pattern of religion defined positively is the description of how a religion is perceived by its adherence to function. Perceived to function has a sense not of what an adherent does on a day-to-day basis, but of how getting in and staying in are understood. That is, the way in which a religion is understood to admit and retain members is considered to be the way it functions. Sanders continues, This may involve daily activities such as prayers, washing, and the like, but we are not, I'm sorry, but we are interested not so much in the details of these activities as in their role and significance in the pattern on what principles they are based, what happens if they are not observed and the like. Uh, Sanders goes on to say, A pattern of religion thus has largely to do with the items which a systematic theology classifies under soteriology, that is, salvation. Pattern of religion is a more satisfactory term for what we are going to describe, however, than soteriology. Soteriology refers to salvation, the doctrine of salvation. Uh, Sanders goes on to conclude, For one thing, it includes more than soteriology usually does. It includes the logical beginning point of the religious life as well as its end, and it includes the steps in between. End quote. Uh, footnote to number 35 shows that this was lifted from Paulus Palestinian Judaism, page 17. I go on to say in my commentary, I personally believe that the prevailing Judaisms that existed in the first century initially upset the biblical balance in the period following the Maccabees from 164 BC to 63 BCE by teaching that legally recognized circumcision was the vehicle by which a loyal Jew as well as non-Jew could and must enter the covenant made with Israel. Shame on them. Let me pause and and, uh, explain just briefly. Covenantal nomism began to take shape around this time period. It was during the the intensive struggles that the Jewish people had with the Eleusid armies, um, the Seleucid armies. I'm saying, I'm sorry, and the uh, the the um, the forced Greco-Roman lifestyle that was being uh, imposed on the Jewish people quite fiercely during the uh, the the Hasmonean dynasty during the Maccabean period. This, these are stories, by the way, that you can read if you pick up a copy of the Bible that includes the, um, the, the extra literature that shows up in, say, the Catholic version, the, uh, the, um, the Book of Jubilees and the Book of Maccabees, and, or you can just do a Google search for it and read it online. 
But this was a time period when covenant nomism kind of rose to the forefront. This idea that if we're going to live as a people group, if we're going to, to maintain our identity as the set-apart people of God, as the elect people of God, we've got to maintain, we've got to preserve those things that cause us to be distinct from the other people groups. And what are these distinctions? Or as Dunn describes it, what are these boundary markers? Circumcision, the food laws, the uh, the holiness issues, the, the, the table fellowship. Um, things like that began to be uh, uh, particularly highlighted within the Jewish people, so much, uh, so much so as to describe essentially Jewish identity, Jewish survival, hinged on these particular boundary markers that began to be um, uh, basically the characteristics of Jewish living and characteristics of um, righteousness. So I go on to say, to be sure, a whole theological council was formulated to deal with this problem in the first century, both in Acts 15, 1 through 35, as well as Acts 21, 17 through 26, the Jerusalem Council had to address the issue of forced Jewish identity for Gentile-seeking salvation, viz. entrance or getting into the people group of Israel, as well as whether or not both Jews and Gentiles and Messiah needed to continue to rely on the works of the law as opposed to living in the freedom of Messiah. Now, let me interject once again. Recall that in my understanding of works of law, which is basically a description of covenantal nomism, my understanding of works of law was this coin with two sides. First side of the coin was your identity, and it was Jewish ethnicity, or you were married into it, or you, were, uh, you attained it by legal status. That is, you converted to Jewish identity. And the second side of the coin was your maintenance of covenant membership as seen through the lens of of um, Torah obedience. So, if the entire coin were a description of covenant membership, and we called this coin works of the law, or we called this coin covenant nomism, whatever language you want to assign to it, this coin, it's very important that we recognize, in my opinion, my understanding of, of, of these terms, it's, it's very important that we recognize that the, the ethnicity as a Jew, the legal ethnicity as a Jew, is what got you into the covenant. So that's the getting in description that um, E.P. Sanders supplies for us. And the maintenance of covenant membership was the Torah obedience on the other side of the coin. And so, if described that way, a person doesn't do the Torah to get in. A person gets in by being a Jew. They do the Torah to stay in. See my point? See the way I'm, I'm stressing uh, the way the two work together? And, the, and just FYI, for those of you who are following along with me and wondering why I keep stressing this, why do I keep repeating this over and over and over in nearly every one of the studies that I'm conducting in my book of Galatians, one of the reasons why I keep stressing this is because as a Jewish believer in Messiah, I follow Torah because I believe, according to Ezekiel chapter 11 and Ezekiel chapter 36, and Jeremiah chapter 31, which we, we read the Ezekiel passage in our liturgy tonight, I believe that God re desires that we maintain our loyalty to covenant, that we maintain our loyalty to the Torah as described in the book of Moses. In other words, I don't believe that in Jesus we should stop keeping the Torah like the Christian church 
supposedly t uh, believes. So as a Jewish man who who makes it a point to follow after Torah, you'd be surprised how many times I am judged by other well-meaning Christians for supposedly trying to keep the Torah to be saved. Or for trying to keep the Torah to supposedly be saved. In other words, the reason I keep stressing the, the view of works of the law the way I do is because I want them to understand that, number one, I'm not keeping the Torah to try to be saved, and number two, I'm not trying to keep the Torah to maintain salvation. In other words, I believe that the standard Christian description and characterization of Jewish people's loyalty to Torah is quite misleading. It's quite unfair. It's quite insulting, to be honest with you, as a, as a religious Jew, if I can share my personal feelings with you. It's actually quite insulting to me when I have well-meaning Christians uh, who assume that I'm keeping the Torah because I think that it's going to save me. Or um, I have well-meaning uh, uh, seminarians who've studied covenantal nomism and understand it the way that I do, and they assume that I'm keeping the Torah because I think I'm maintaining my covenant membership by my Torah obedience. Either one of those characterizations is wrong, and that's why I keep emphasizing it for you in my Galatian study. I want you, the Gentile Christians listening to this commentary, I want you to consider these facts. Listen to me for a moment. I want to share my heart with you. The next time you see a Torah-observant person, whether he be Jewish or Gentile, doesn't matter because I believe that the Torah is not for Jews only. So the next time you see a person keeping Seventh-day Sabbath, trying to keep kosher, walking into the festivals, wearing tzitzit, and practicing circumcision for their children, consider this for a moment. If they espouse to faith and belief, uh, espouse to faith in Yeshua, believing in Messiah, consider giving them the benefit of the doubt. Consider that they keep the Torah because they're saved. Consider that they keep the Torah because they are maintaining um, loyalty to covenant because that's what God asks and what God expects of, of um, covenant members. Understand? Consider that they, they are keeping the Torah because they are empowered by the Spirit to do so. Consider that they keep the Torah because Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Because the book of 1 John says that his commandments are not burdensome. Because the book of Revelations talks about the, those who have the faith of Jesus and keep the commandments of God. Consider that they are keeping the Torah because Acts 21 describes Jews who are zealous for the Torah. Believers in Jesus who are zealous for the Torah. Consider that they're keeping Torah because Paul describes in Romans 3.31 that we do not nullify this faith nullify the law through faith, we uphold the law. Consider that they're keeping the Torah because Jesus said, I did not come to do away with the law, but to fulfill. And then he goes on to describe his fulfilling as doing even the least of these commandments so that we will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Are you guys catching my point? As I close uh, my, my study tonight, we'll pick up this commentary again on the top of page 44. Um, where we talk about uh, um, uh, continuing our discussion on covenantal nomism. Um, as I close tonight, I, I want to just uh, make an impassioned plea to Gentile Christians who are listening to my commentary. Please don't judge Torah-obedient Jews and Gentiles for keeping the Torah. Please don't assume that they're keeping the Torah because they think it's going to save them. And for those of uh, for those Torah-obedient um, 
I'm sorry, for those uh, more learned Jews and Gentiles who uh, perhaps aren't keeping Torah the way other Jews and Gentiles, uh, how do I say this? Those those people who are fo- following Seventh-day Sabbath, keeping kosher, keeping the dietary laws, things like that, table fellowship, uh, walking into the festivals, don't judge them as if they're keeping only the shadows. Don't judge them. Don't judge us as if we are legalists. Don't label us legalists, please. Don't don't see us in that light. Don't cast us in that stereotype. Give us the benefit of doubt. If you have a question, ask us. Ask us, why are you guys keeping Torah? Hopefully we'll tell you <laughs> hopefully we'll tell you the right answer. We keep Torah because it's what God asks of us. It's what God expects of genuine loyal covenant members. It's what God commanded us to do in the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your might. And these words which I command you today shall be on your heart. You see, we keep Torah because God commands us to. We are we are we are commanded to keep it, but God empowers us to keep it. So it's not it's not that we do it routinely. It's not legalism. It's not road. It's not perfunctory. It's not. Um, it's not robotic. We don't just do it on autopilot. We do it out of a love for God and a love for His Messiah and a love for the people of God. Amen. Amen. Okay. Let me close in prayer and then uh, I'll keep the chat room open <clears throat> for the next twenty minutes or so, and we can entertain some questions or comments and things like that. Okay. Let's close in prayer and uh, draw our study to a close. Abba, I bless your name, and I thank you for the opportunity to teach. Father, I pray that you'll continue to help the students to draw closer to you in a sincere knowledge and dependency upon Yeshua. Lord, as I'm going along and teaching and sharing my thoughts and my concerns with the students and with those who are following my commentary, Lord, I don't want them to remember the things that I say because I said them. I don't want them to be drawn to me is the point I'm trying to make. Lord, I want them to be drawn to you. I don't want to share the spotlight with you. You deserve the preeminence. You deserve the glory. You deserve the honor. Lord, you deserve the praise because you alone are Messiah. And I lift you up. I thank you and I magnify your name. And I bless you, Father, for preserving the words of Galatians so that we can be built up as a people, both Jew and Gentile, rallying around the banner of our Messiah, Yeshua, upholding his name, declaring his truths, and sharing our witness to a lost and dying world. Lord, the people out there need to hear what we've got to say. So for that reason, Lord, give us divine appointments, open doorways of opportunity for us to witness, Help us to be bold. Help us to wear the armor of Ephesians chapter 6, which includes feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Thank you, Lord, for the helmet of salvation. Thank you that we are able to take a stand in Messiah. And having done all to stand, Paul says, stand firm. So let us take a stand for Yeshua and rally around his banner. Thank you that by your Spirit, that you're causing us to walk into your ways and to be a witness, to be lights, to be salt. For we know indeed that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And so we know that as we demonstrate 
the ancient paths, as we showcase the words of God, the ways of God, we know that this is the light that the world needs to see. We know that they indeed can find truth in Messiah. But once they come to Jesus, they don't run away from Torah. They actually run into Torah. And so we bless you, Father, for these wonderful truths. Continue to raise us up. Continue to draw us close. Um, Lord, we want to uh, be a people that is characterized by uh, obedience to you, by dependency on Yeshua. Um, Lord, we want to know that uh, we are found righteous in you because you have uh, delivered us. Lord, you have set us free and you are drawing us closer to yourself. So thank you, Lord, that you have set us free in Messiah, which is the the, uh, picture typified by Passover, and that you are filling us with the truth of Messiah, which is the picture typified by Pentecost. From Passover to Pentecost, we're counting the Omer. Lord, we say, Baruch HaOmer. Blessed are you, Lord our God, the King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us to count the Omer. Lord, we'll give you the praise and the glory in all of these things. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com.